Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the most recent Rudd Center webcast. Our guest today is K. Michael Cummings, Dr. K. Michael Cummings, who's chair of the Department of Health and of Health Behavior in the Division of Cancer Prevention and Population Sciences at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo. He's also on the faculty at the University of Buffalo and at the State University of New York at Albany. Dr. Cummings has had a very long history of work in the tobacco area. In fact, is one of the world's leading experts on tobacco policy. He's contributed, contributed in important ways to several Surgeon General's reports on tobacco, has published extensively on this, and is considered to be one of the most innovative thinkers in the area of international tobacco policy. Uh, so, Mike, welcome. Thank you. Thanks I'm for having me. Delighted to have you here. Um, today, when you were speaking at the Rudd Center, you were talking about lessons to be learned in the obesity area from tobacco. So let's go into the tobacco area and, and get, so, get a few things established. What's the world picture of tobacco right now? I know there have been significant gains in the U.S. and the number of people smoking, but other things are happening around the world that may counteract that. So can you give us a sense of what the overall picture is? Sure. Uh, tobacco use uh, worldwide is uh, increasing. And uh, so that means as uh, tobacco use increases and population increases on top of that, uh, we're uh, projecting an increase in the number of deaths that we're going to see. Most of those uh, are going to occur in the developing world. Uh, in the developed world, like the United States, the UK, Australia, smoking rates uh, peaked about uh, 40 years ago and have been on the downward slide. And uh, we're now beginning to reap those benefits in seeing less cancer caused by uh, cigarettes and uh, heart disease rates are dropping and so on. And other causes of premature death are beginning to, uh, you know, overtake tobacco. Tobacco is still the number one cause of premature death uh, that we have. Uh, and uh, But that's you know, slowly changing in the developed world. But worldwide, uh, the projection is uh, in this century that we're in, uh, a billion deaths. In the last century, which was really the century where tobacco took hold in the United States, we had about 100 million deaths worldwide. So about a tenfold increase is predicted in this next century. That's remarkable. I've heard uh, somebody say that one of the greatest public health victories of the last century in the United States was cutting the prevalence of tobacco by about, smoking by about half. And so uh, it's, it's very interesting to look at the reasons that that's happened and, and to find some common ground that we might be able to apply in the obesity area. So let's talk about several parts of this. First is this very interesting uh, parallel between the concept of personal responsibility and industry behavior. And in the food area, uh, the industry and its allies and government are very quick to say that obesity is a matter of personal responsibility. It's a private health issue rather than a public health issue, and the sort of things you've heard for years and years in tobacco. How has that issue played out in the tobacco arena, and has the, the social perception of tobacco changed in that respect over the years? Well, I think it has changed, and it's been one of the main reasons why we've seen a shift in tobacco use, uh, particularly uh, beginning in the 70s and really taking hold in the 80s and 90s was a movement of non-smokers uh, demanding clean indoor air. And so that really dramatically changed the denominator of concern from the smoker who, uh, you know, the industry was always fast to say that was your choice to smoke. Uh, of course, we know now that, 
it's an addiction. Uh, and most smokers, in fact, uh, our studies worldwide show that uh, in excess of 90% of smokers, when, when they're asked, do you regret ever having started, say yes. Um, and many people try to quit every year and fail. And um, so it's a, at best a constrained choice. But uh, the involvement of non-smokers and the changing social norm uh, that that brought along, uh, protecting the interests of others, your children, your family members, coworkers, people you share an airplane with, the movie theaters, uh, this dramatically changed uh, tobacco use and attitudes about tobacco use. And uh, the industry's uh, continued effort to lie about the dangers of their product uh, became less credible over time. and. Uh, I would say that Philip Morris's credibility is about where uh, maybe our U.S. government is these days. <laughs> um, the word lie is interesting in here, and that's a pretty strong term, of course. Um, the fact that people that people got an inside look at what the industry thought and did from the release of the documents that's occurred over the years and testimony before Congress and things like that, how much of a difference does that make? I think it's made a big difference, uh, certainly in the litigation area. And I mean, I think the litigation area has, you know, first and foremost, cost the industry money, which raised the price, which reduced demand. So there's a direct relationship, uh, at least in the last decade and maybe decade and a half, between the litigation that's gone on and, and reductions in tobacco use. But the documents, uh, there were no cases that were ever won. There were many that were brought in the 50s and 60s, and, and then another wave of litigation that occurred uh, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, none of it uh, really took hold. The industry would just outspend the poor attorneys who would try to bring these cases, and they had no evidence uh, other than the epidemiologic data. And of course, the industry would trot out their own paid witnesses uh, to say, well, we just don't know. It's a controversy. Um, that changed uh, in the late 1980s in a case in New Jersey, actually, the Chipolone case, and a very smart attorney there, uh, Mark Adele, uh, managed to get some internal documents from the industry. And uh, the judge in that case, who eventually got dismissed because I think the industry was so upset about it, uh, uh, when he got to see these documents, uh, basically uh, said that the industry was the king of deception and fraud. And that's why it got dismissed. Uh, and the case eventually got dismissed. But having those few documents that came out in that case actually provided a roadmap to others. Uh, in, uh, you know, uh, the CEOs getting up in front of Congress in 1994, a big, you know, public relations disaster for them when they lied about, you know, cigarettes causing cancer and it not being addictive and so on. And most people thought this was just poppycock, which, of course, it was. And some internal industry insiders uh, took advantage of that and went and uh, met secretly with uh, Dr. Kessler, who was then the uh, head of the FDA, and uh, began to share some of what they knew. Uh, but there was a paralegal uh, in uh, Kentucky at the Brown and Williamson offices there who uh, managed to get his hands on documents. He had been hired to go to their document warehouse. and. Uh, he, you know, was reading these documents, which were to be shipped overseas, in other words, to hide them from the litigation. And um, he made copies of some of the documents, uh, about 40,000 or so of these documents. And uh, then he uh, had some health problems, and then he tried to blackmail his employer, 
uh, over them, and his employer took him to court. That was a mistake. They should have just given him the money. I think he would have handed back the documents. But um, he went to a lawyer because he was being threatened. He had done something illegal. Um, and uh, we're not exactly sure about the rest of the story, except some of those documents managed to find their way to the New York Times and to the University of California, San Francisco uh, Medical Library, where they were kept and got out. And those documents, again, provided uh, the basis for a book, The Cigarette Papers, a series of Pulitzer-winning prize uh, articles that appeared in the New York Times, and then people asking for more documents and the litigation that went on uh, in the uh, around the master settlement, this was the state attorney generals. They started asking for those documents, and the industry knew they were in big trouble. And they then uh, decided, uh, as they were about to lose a case in Minnesota, to release their documents and put them up online. And um, so there are lots of documents now. Uh, the estimate is about 50 million pages worth. And uh, it's made a big difference. I think the public perception of the industry, uh, their lies have been, uh, you know, uh, made public uh, in their own words. Uh, we have videotapes of them uh, going back because they were incredible document handlers. And uh, I've managed to get my hands on the Tobacco Institute documents, which were turned over to New York State. And we spent the last six years, you know, you know going through those materials. And they're, they're quite damning. Is it safe to say that the public opinion turned against the tobacco industry for this series of reasons you've said, and that softens them up to, well, first of all, not believing what the industry says when they, when they distort science, but then also when the industry tries to fight off legislative or regulatory things, that it becomes harder for the industry to do that because the public is now against them? Yes, um, it, it does to some extent. The industry is still amazingly resilient. Uh, they fought off tax increases a year ago in California. They're still fighting clean indoor air laws. Uh, the Ohio, as we speak, uh, the Ohio uh, Tobacco Control Program, which was funded uh, with their master settlement money, is now in jeopardy. Uh, and, you know, the tobacco companies have their fingers in all of that. And so money makes a big difference, and they've been very good at, and particularly in higher places in government. So the higher you go to the federal level or a state level, uh, the industry is usually lurking in some way in the form of lobbyists. You don't always know that they're lobbyists for the tobacco company. They may be re representing a different industry, including the food industry. Many people aren't aware that, you know, Philip Morris is, uh, you know, has uh, shares of uh, General Foods and Kraft and Nabisco and Miller Beer and. Uh, you know, there's been this interaction that's existed between these companies. And they're very similar because they're basically companies to market products to, you know, mass market and make lots of money on really cheap products, basically, that, and, you know, buyer beware in terms of the health consequences. Let's talk about marketing for a minute because there's so many interesting parallels here. Um, could you explain a briefly the history of the fairness doctrine and the tobacco industry stopping its advertising on TV? Sure. Uh, the fairness doctrine, uh, which uh, I think Ronald Reagan got rid of uh, during his term, but it was uh, when you had an important public health or public interest issue, it could be uh, elections, you know, politicians arguing you'd have to have both sides of an issue. And in the uh, 19... 60s, right after the Surgeon General in 64, Luther Terry issued his report, you know, tobacco was certainly a big issue. And of course, the industry was on television at that time, advertising, Marlboros and Salem's and so on. And 
uh, and spending millions to do that. So a, a young lawyer, John Banzeff, went, uh, took them to, uh, uh, basically took the Federal Trade Commission to, uh, to court, and, uh, or Federal Communications Commission to court, and uh, sued the government over wanting equal time to put on the information about the dangers of smoking. It's interesting because uh, he had to actually convince the uh, uh, American Cancer Society and Lung Association and Heart you know, Association to, to go along with him because uh, they would have this advertising. It turns out he won his case. Uh, and, you know, in the Fairness Doctrine required from approximately 1965 uh, up into about 1970, for every cigarette ad, you were supposed to have an anti-smoking ad that appeared. And during that period, cigarette consumption actually declined at the fastest rate in our history. So as people got information, it certainly was making a big difference. Uh, and it's even more remarkable because the TV stations at the time, which were beholden to cigarette advertisers, they were their largest clients, um, basically they weren't too happy about having to take this anti-smoking advertising. They could see this was going to cause problems for them. And so they only put up, basically it turned out, about one anti-smoking ad for every four cigarette ads that appeared. But even that, cigarette consumption was declining rapidly. So in 1970... Uh, actually, in 1969, Congress passed the Cigarette uh, Labeling Act, which uh, had some effect on labeling of tobacco products or warnings. Uh, it also had the effect of pulling cigarette advertising off of broadcasts, uh, radio and TV. And a lot of people wonder, you know, felt that maybe the industry would oppose this, but they were happy because they were spending millions on advertising on radio and TV, and their consumption is actually going down. So... Um, so they were happy to get off of TV. They would have probably voluntarily done it anyway because that would have ended the anti-smoking ads. And uh, when they came off of TV in 1971, actually in January 1971, uh, what happened was uh, they shifted their advertising into magazines and uh, billboards and newspapers. And so they actually ended up spending more money marketing. and. Uh, was the downfall of some brands. Winston Cigarettes was a very effectively advertised brand on television. Marlboro translated much better into print and uh, into billboards and point of sale. Uh, and so Marlboro sales uh, were benefited and uh, Winston didn't do so well. And today, hardly anybody smokes Winston. It's a brand that's uh, pretty much died out of the market. It's a very important lesson to be learned from this for the nutrition and obesity field because there's great concern now of food marketing directed at children. And basically all the data that exists are on television advertising. And, and it's now kind of dated, but that's what exists. And, and there's really very little known about Internet advertising, product placements, advertisements coming over cell phones, and all the modern forms of advertising. And so there's a real danger of falling into the same trap that happened inadvertently with tobacco, that you might um, enact some sort of regulatory act that would ban one form of marketing, but the industry might even use those dollars more cost-effectively in some other form. Exactly. And in fact, uh, the industry created their voluntary advertising codes. You probably see these popping up already with the uh, food industry. Uh, and that was actually being discussed in the late 50s and 60s. And the TV broadcasters actually in the early 60s were ready to take cigarette advertising off of television uh, for the very reason you indicate. Of course, in 1962, the Flintstones, a cartoon, uh, 
uh, was was sponsored by R.J. Reynolds Tobacco mm-hmm. Company. Uh, in one of the court cases I testified, the lawyers tried to convince me that uh, it was really the honeymooners, just a an adult cartoon. But uh, I pointed out that I was 11 years old at the time, and I was watching the Flintstones on TV, so that didn't hold too much water with the uh, with the jury, I think. But uh, at any rate, the uh, uh, there's an interesting parallel, I think, between the, you know, the industry first will go for a voluntary code, which they can control and violate to their heart's content. The industry did that. And then they'll accept a weakened legislation. Uh, and they're always interested in one thing. They're, they're businesses that are beholden to their shareholders, and they're businesses to make them a profit. And if their profit is coming from selling a lethal addictive product uh, that's uh, not good for health, uh, oh well. You know, and then they'll blame it on the victim, which has been something we still see today in tobacco. I, you certainly see this in the in the obesity area that uh, you know, person has made bad choices rather than uh, really having no choices at all. Can you explain the uh, situation with taxes on tobacco and the impact that's had that's had on smoking rates? Well, price makes a difference. I think every consumer knows, you know, particularly if you're buying gasoline now, that uh, maybe you're thinking twice about that extra trip that you're going to take and so on. And in, in, in cigarettes, uh, it actually makes a difference. Even though it's a relatively low-cost product, uh, you know, it only costs a nickel to make a pack. So uh, the government's figured out they could tax it. Mostly uh, uh, the federal government got into taxing tobacco Uh, around uh, wars. So it was used up until this most recent conflict. uh, We've chosen not to tax tobacco to fund. We'd rather go into debt, I guess, uh, with the current conflict, but uh, been used to uh, pay for the wars. And then states have used it as an income generator. But anytime you raise the price through taxation or otherwise, uh, it has a uh, deterrent effect on uh, consumption. So a 10% increase in the price of a package of cigarettes uh, overall reduces consumption pretty consistently about 3 to 4 percent. The effects are not uh, uniform across all subgroups in the population. Those who have less disposable income, those who are not yet addicted, are more affected by the price. So a 10 percent increase on kids basically has about a 7 percent uh, reduction in the prevalence of smoking among uh, teenagers. Uh, it also has a bigger effect among the poor, which is why they call it a regressive tax, unless you're progressively trying to see them live longer, in which case, and, and have more money in their pocket, because as a nickel a pack and you're spending uh, a couple of bucks, I call that a ripoff. I don't really call that uh, something that's very progressive uh, or regressive for a, uh, for a smoker. So is it fair to say then that the um, taxes on tobacco have been one of the most effective, or if not the most effective, um, interventions used to curb levels of smoking? It is. Uh, I would say it is uh, certainly a critical factor, price. Uh, how you raise the price can be a variety of uh, the cost of doing business. Litigation gets passed on the consumers, so that has raised effectively raised the price. Uh, requiring changes in how you manufacture or distribute the product uh, is a way of raising the price. But taxation certainly is one of the tools that the government has, and it is very effective. But in tobacco control, I think we've learned that there's a synergy among a lot of these policies. So counter-marketing, advertising restrictions, clean and dry air laws, taxation policies, school programs, cessation programs for those uh, desperately addicted smokers, 
you know, the taxes ought to go back and pay for some of these programs, actually. Uh, in New York, we use some of the tax revenue that we collect on cigarettes uh, to pay for a quit line that provides free nicotine medications. You don't have that in Connecticut. And if I were a smoker in Connecticut, frankly, I'd be outraged that I'm paying taxes on my cigarettes and not getting anything in return. You know, the reason I ask about the taxes is you can juxtapose the, the corollary of the personal responsibility approach, which really means, which really goes this way, that people are making bad choices and the way they're going to make good choices is to give them more information. And so education really is the ticket. And in the obesity and nutrition field, um, the nutrition education programs that have been done don't work very well and they cost a lot. So they're simply not possible to use on a broad scale, even if we got them to work. Whereas you could pass a law where there's really no cost involved. I mean, there's administrative costs, but there's very little cost involved in doing something like changing the price structure of something like food. And I think there's a very valuable lesson to be learned from tobacco. I mean, if you chose to deal with tobacco just by educating people and you didn't do anything to change the price, you'd be missing a tremendous opportunity to improve the public health. Yeah, uh, I think both are important. Information uh, is a necessary but not sufficient condition for change. Uh, and incentives work, both positive and negative. So, you know, raising the price so the uh, bad foods are purchased less often and maybe lowering the price so the foods uh, that might be better choices are more available and accessible make a difference. So, you know, in tobacco, we have it really backwards. We've made it easiest to get cigarettes. They're sold in every hundred yards. Basically, every store you go into has these things and they're relatively low cost. And for a lot of years, we didn't tax them at very high rates. In some parts of the U.S., we still don't. And uh, certainly don't pay the bills. I mean, uh, uh, economically, in New York State, it's costing state taxpayers about $8 billion a year to pay for tobacco. That's just the medical bills alone. We collect about a billion dollars in taxes, and we're we're a high tax state for tobacco, and uh, but I call that a deficit uh, because if you're only getting back a million and it's costing you eight billion or a, a, a billion in taxes and eight billion out the out the door every year for medical expenses, that's a that's a deficit that you accrue every year. And I don't know how politicians get away with it to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. So uh, they ought to balance that and make you pay your way. Uh, and certainly the same is true, I think, for the food industry. It's uh, a logical, very simple approach. Um, and you look at accessibility of the products. It's harder to get healthy foods than it is uh, to get uh, unhealthy ones. Now, Vera, another area where I think there's some interesting parallels is what role you see action at the grassroots playing and what role large government can make. And in the obesity area, the, it appears that the federal government is poised to do very little on this issue. And for maybe some of the same reasons that exist with tobacco, it's easy for the food industry to mobilize and lobby at the federal level. And depending on what kind of a government you have in place, you can really stall anything very progressive. So a lot, lot of little has happened at the level of the federal government. On the other hand, some states are taking very interesting actions. Some cities, like New York City with menu labeling and banning trans fats would be an example of that. And communities are doing things. Parent groups are, ri are rising up to try to get rid of soft drinks in schools, let's say. How did that play out in tobacco? I think it's absolutely the same. I mean, the most effective and most novel and innovative policies came from the grassroots. Uh, people who were affected and harmed, who could see the effects, uh, putting, you know, real 
names on the victims, I think, makes a big difference. Uh, and, uh, and then people demand change. You have less, when you have change going on in a lot of places, uh, the food industry or the tobacco industry had found it pretty hard to fight. And, you know, when they, they were very well organized, they still are at the state and the federal level. And uh, I think uh, it is harder to get change uh, at those levels, even though when you can accomplish a state clean and dry law, it seems like you've gotten a lot. Uh, but, um, I mean, frankly, we would have never had those things happen had the change not happened first at the local level. So my philosophy has always been simple. I, I always uh, think global and act local. And so many of the things, you know, I, I'm involved in doing research, you know, in nations and around the world on tobacco, but I always have a, a local angle that I'm looking at applying uh, the work that we do in our own community, because if we can't do it there, then we shouldn't be telling governments what to do for the masses. So um, I think the grassroots efforts, particularly in clean indoor air, that was uh, critical. Not too many people are out there advocating for tobacco taxes unless the money is going to be spent on something that they can see it's going to be spent for. So uh, politicians like the money unrestricted so, because they have their own interests. But uh, the public, to get behind it, they're very supportive when you say, well, we want to use this money for prevention programs or to pay for cancer care or, you know, to keep our health care premiums uh, low or to pay, pay for child uh, health insurance, for example. Uh, and so there's huge public support when you can you know, allow the public to have a say where the money goes. Um, an interesting legal concept that we think about a lot, and I know you have as well, that's related to this grassroots versus federal action is preemption. Can you describe what the concept means and how it applies to whether the grassroots can go to town and whether it gets preempted by the federal government? Well, the word is pretty obvious. It's yeah. preempting action, and uh, it's been a big tool in the tobacco industry's arsenal uh, to block effective policies uh, to go into a place. So uh, as communities were beginning to restrict smoking, uh, what you would have is uh, efforts at a county re you know, region or at a state level perhaps to pass these laws that say, oh yeah, we'll give you a little bit of clean indoor air, you know, maybe a smoking section and a non-smoking section, you know, compromise. And so you weaken the laws, but then they would have a rider on it that would say, the locality is preempted from making a stronger law. Well, that makes no sense. You know, our society is built on the ability of citizens to have their say, and they ought to be able to make the rules where they live. And um, but you know, not if you're in a in an industry that's interested in you know trying to minimize the impact of policies that work. So you can always find it's a smell test. You know, when you see preemption being introduced in, a, in legislation, usually at the state or federal level, it usually stinks. And it usually is an indication that the industry has had a hand in it. And, um, you know, uh, my experience is walk away as fast as you can and fight it. Uh, we have many examples around the United States today where clean indoor air doesn't exist in certain places. Pennsylvania is the most recent one. You know, Pittsburgh has passed a clean indoor air law. Philadelphia has, you know, done one. But they can't put them in effect comprehensive clean indoor air laws that make perfect sense. The Surgeon General has put out a report. There's, there's no debate. <laughs> you know, it's like air pollution indoors. It's not good. And uh, yet uh, in Pennsylvania, most of the restaurants and bars still allow smoking. The reason is, uh, you know, the 
state law preempts those cities from actually passing a stronger measure, even though the city councils want them. The people, this, you know, it's an elected government, and they're not getting representation thanks to corporate America. You know, the, the your, um, use of the word smell test and walk away is interesting because there's a case in play right now of this happening in the food area in, um, in Washington State. Um, Seattle, actually, the, the unit of government there is the county, King County government, has been looking at menu labeling legislation where restaurants would be required to post calories on their, on their um, restaurant menus or on the menu boards. Around the country, when these things have come up, most notably in New York City, the restaurant industry has fought this viciously. And one can speculate why, and they have stated reasons, and then there are what I feel the real reasons. They don't want to have consumers have sticker shock when they see what kind of calories are in these these items. So back to Seattle. So Seattle is proposing this. The re- restaurant industry has swooped in and sent its lobbyists to, to um, work with state legislators to try to pass a law at the state level that preempts localities from imposing their own menu labeling requirements. So it's exactly the parallel of what you talked about in Pennsylvania with the Clean Air Act. And I agree, that's the sort of thing that needs to be fought off, but it, it's happening a lot. And most people in the public don't see what's happening when this occurs because it's kind of a technical legal issue and most people wouldn't find it very exciting to hear about preemption, but it really is very important. Right, and particularly in the restaurant industry, which is, you know, for the most part, local. You know, most restaurants are local. I mean, there are certainly big chains and so on, but most restaurants are local and could easily, uh, you know, if they, if their government wants to have the local law, what is the state coming in or the feds coming in to tell you you can't do that? That, And, you know, what are you talking about? Disclosure. Ooh, we don't want the consumer to know. I mean, it really just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and it's anti-democratic. Uh, preemption is just a bad thing, and uh, you know it's just uh, should be avoided. I think in public health policies, doesn't mean that uh, all local laws are going to be effective. Uh, we don't know for a lot of these laws, but you want innovation so you can see what works and what doesn't. And uh, you know governments are not stupid; they're going to learn from the experience of others, and uh, and you want you know your government officials to be paying attention to those experiences because one of their responsibilities is to protect the public health. And uh, so you would think a disclosure law would make perfect sense but and would be fully supported. But it is amazing to see the opposition, and it's hard to always understand where the opposition is coming from. And um, in the smoke-free area, and we used to have uh, citizen groups that were sort of you know, created. We'd learned that, you know, actually they were getting money from Reynolds or Philip Morris or there would be legal challenges. Uh, when the clean and air law passed in our county, uh, one of the bar owners sued the, the, uh, the government. It was Well, they didn't have to pay a dime. It was all paid for by Philip Morris. So, uh, um, you know, when that gets revealed, which it should be, I mean, I think people sort of recognize what's going on and most people want to live in a healthy place, and providing an environment makes it easy for people to make real choices, informed choices. Uh, if people really made informed choices, uh, they wouldn't be smoking cigarettes, I can tell you that. Well, thank you so much. It, it's very important that uh, in our field, the nutrition and obesity field, that we learn as much as we can from the warriors and the pioneers in other areas, and you've been one of them to be sure. And so it's wonderful to hear the experience and to see how that maps onto our field. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So our guest today has been K. Michael Cummings, Dr. K. Michael Cummings from the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo, New York, uh, a world's leading expert on tobacco policy.
If you'd like to hear other Rudd Center webcasts, feel free to go to our website at www.yalerudcenter.org, and you'll see a number of excellent webcasts listed. Thank you.